In our last session, when we looked at Aristotle's notion of substance, I talked about his distinction between form and matter, the distinction that corresponds to the difference between being and becoming, between actuality and potentiality. But then when we look at the zenith of his thinking, we see him speaking of his concept of God, which is that of pure form or of absolute actuality, that which has being but no becoming, actuality without potentiality. And popularly, his definition of God is defined as the unmoved mover or the uncaused cause the formal first cause of everything else that exists in the world. Now, remember when he had his idea of each entity being made up, every substance being made up of form and matter, except for pure form, that it is the form within something that controls the development of that thing's potential. That's the form within the acorn that moves the acorn to become an oak tree. We've already established that. And so we now are left with the question, well, if you have all these individual entities running about with their independent forms and matters, how does it all fit together? And we're right back to the question that Thales was asking originally of the one and the many of unity and diversity. So over all the individual substances that we encounter in the real world, there stands Aristotle's God, who is pure form. He has eternal being, and he also must have the power to organize and generate and move everything else that moves. Remember, the ancient Greeks were looking for the answer to being and to the answer of motion. And so he said that the ultimate source of all motion is pure form. This absolute form directs the individual forms that are moving in this world. Now, how does he do it? Or for Aristotle, the pure form is himself not moving, or itself not moving, yet it is the mover. How does it move? Other things, well, it moves everything, all the other forms, by attraction. And the analogy is the moth and the flame. The flame stays in the same place. But it moves the moth by attracting the moth. It's almost like a primitive sense of magnetism or of gravity, if you will. Now again, Aristotle's God is not a personal God like Judeo-Christianity has. It is this ultimate pure being of force and power from which everything else comes. And of course, this being is eternal and exists by necessity. As I said, ideas have consequences. 
the greatness of Augustine, who was considered the greatest theologian of the first millennium of Christianity, was that he was able to create a kind of synthesis between biblical Christianity and Platonic philosophy. Likewise, and this is a bit of an oversimplification in my opinion, but nevertheless it's the standard rap, that the greatness of Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, was his ability to create a synthesis between Christianity and Aristotelian philosophy. Now, as I said, that's oversimplified because there were many elements of Aristotle's philosophy, particularly with respect to his understanding of the relationship between God and the world, that Aquinas comprehensively rejected. But we'll wait until we get to Aquinas before we see that. But for now, we have the rudimentary concepts of an eternal, self-existing being that must be for anything else to exist, a necessary being, as it were. But there is no concept of conscious, personal, divine providence or of a voluntary creation in Aristotle's view of God. His view of God, Will Durant referred to Aristotle's God as being somewhat similar to the King of England. He reigns, but he doesn't rule. He's more or less a figurehead there that's a philosophical necessity to explain the things that are. Now, since we've seen already the significant difference between Aristotle and Plato with respect to their metaphysics, their doctrines of being and becoming, that also falls over into the realm of epistemology, where Aristotle also differed sharply from his mentor with respect to the idea of how we know what we know. Remember, Plato had his theory of recollection, where the ideas are embedded in the souls of all people, and it's just a matter of getting that knowledge out that's already there, so that knowledge is, if you remember the technical term, a priori. For Aristotle, knowledge is a posteriori. That is, it comes from experience. It comes initially through sense perception. A sense perception is an impression that we have through one of the five senses, an experience of seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling. Those are the senses, and we perceive things through those five senses. And from sense perception comes an image in the brain or in the mind. You see something and you have an image of what you see in the mind. And then out of these images come ideas. So that knowledge or ideas are dependent not upon recalling information you're born with, but from learning things through this process of using the senses with the mind working with the senses. Now, the mind does have a priori abilities, no knowledge, but abilities. The mind is that organ in the body or in the human person that has the ability to work with the raw data of sensation that we have to synthesize these impressions, to abstract them, to combine them, put them together, and form intelligible 
ideas. Now, at this point, I'm going to give you another distinction. And that is this distinction that we make in philosophy between realism and nominalism. Now, if you recall, when we looked at Plato, I confused everybody when I said Plato is at the same time a realist and an idealist, using those terms in this way. That for Plato, the ideas that we have, the ideas of humanness, chairness, and so on, that those ideas are real entities. And hence he is called a realist. For Aristotle, ideas are not real in the sense of having being within them. And so the old debate that goes on through the Middle Ages and even today that is called the argument over realism and nominalism goes back to this dispute between Plato and his disciple Aristotle. And it goes back to two words, not in Greek but in Latin, where we have the word race in Latin, and every attorney or judge knows what that means. A race in legal terms, is the thing that's the matter. Now, race is simply the word for thing. And the word nomina, nomina, in Latin means name. We say that some people are nominal Christians. We mean by that they are Christians in name only. We talk about denominations or nominating. You name somebody for a particular office in an election. That's a nomination, putting their name up for election. And so the word nomina means name. Nominalism means simply that universals, universals, which in this case are generic ideas, tree-ness, elephant-ness, human-ness, all these ideas that we have that we universalize. For Aristotle are not things, but their names. I had a chair up here when I talked about Plato, and I said, how do you recognize that this chair is a chair? And how can we call so many different entities by the same name, chair? Well, for Plato, Plato says, well, in the eternal world, there's this pure chairness, this pure idea of chairness. And when we see a close approximation of it, an imperfect copy of it in the material world, we say, aha, I'm getting a recollection of that idea of chairness. And so I identify this object as a chair. Aristotle says, no. He says, that's not how it works. He said, if we start to learn and we perceive an object in our mummy, we say, what's that? And you say, well, that's a chair. And then you see another object and your mother tells you, well, that's a chair too, even though it differs significantly from the first chair, that your mind has the ability to have all these sensations and all these images and to put them together and abstract, combine and relate these experiences and come up with a generic concept of chairness. 
doesn't mean there really is such a thing as chairness. There's just this universal idea that is a construction of the mind. It's a name, and that's all it is, is a name that we assign to universal general categories. And we use that when we apply particulars into those various different spheres. And so we would say that Aristotle was not a realist in the sense of believing that universal ideas had independent reality, but he was a nominalist in the so far as he believed that universal concepts are merely mental names that we have conceived by the mind. He also taught that truth involves conformity between the mind and a thing. This is an early form of the correspondence theory of truth. What he meant by that is when your mental idea corresponds to the external object that you are seeking to know or conforms to it, when your idea of chair of the particular chair that you see, corresponds to the reality of that chair, you have truth. When your idea does not conform to that actual object, you have error or you have falsehood. And so part of the whole process of learning is to constantly seek more precision and exactitude in conforming our ideas or concepts of things to actual entities that exist out there. Now, in all of this, Aristotle thought that at the beginning of knowledge, there have to be certain rules that we follow for science to take place. And he distinguished among all these different disciplines of investigative inquiry. As I said, physics, biology, astronomy, ethics, jurisprudence, and aesthetics, and all the rest. He said, but there are certain principles of knowing that have to be applied to all fields of inquiry for science to be possible. And so, he talked about the role of logic in the knowing process. Now, it's important that Aristotle did not consider the study of logic a separate, independent science from all of the other sciences that he was engaged in. But rather, he called logic the organon of all science. Now, the word organon simply means instrument. Just like musicians have instruments that they need to use to play music, and the sculptor has an instrument, namely the chisel or the hammer, that he needs to have to make his statue, so the instrument that we need in order to construct real knowledge is logic. And he sees logic as a necessary instrument 
for all intelligible discourse. I'm going to explain that in a second. But first, it's important, particularly in light of the age in which we live, which is one of the most anti-rational periods in the history of Western thought, where people are not only accepting contradictions and irrationality, they're glorying in it. And we've seen the breakup of rational, coherent thought. Remember Francis Schaeffer's little book, Escape from Reason. Existentialism has launched a massive assault against the rational and so on. And we've seen in our own day the theater of the absurd and John Cage's arbitrary forms of music and so on. Aristotle did not invent logic. Let me say it again. Aristotle did not invent logic any more than Christopher Columbus invented America. What Aristotle sought to do was to articulate how logical categories function. He didn't think that he was the first logical person. He didn't think that logic didn't exist before him. He's simply asking the question as a philosopher, what has to be for us to be able to speak intelligibly about biology or astronomy or physics or anything else? And he said, well, there are certain basic needs that have to be met for intelligibility to occur. And one is that our statements be logically constructed. What he means by that is that they not violate the first law of logic, which is the law of non-contradiction. Before I go into that, let me just give one other distinction that he makes in terms of his exposition of how logic works. He says that logic and all science depend upon the relationships between the general and the particular, or what we would say between the subject and the predicate. If I'm a biologist and I want to know what an amoeba is, I may say an amoeba, in order to distinguish it from a frog, I will say an amoeba is something. I will predicate characteristics. I will mention the particulars that define an amoeba and then contrast it or compare it with the particulars that define a frog. Now, when you were in junior high school or in grade school, you learned about the whole process of classification, where you have the genus and the species, the kingdom and the phylos, and so on. And we say, well, you know, there's the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. Now, they're both examples of living things. But they're two completely different kingdoms. They have one thing in common. There's the general. They're both bios. They're both alive. Okay? But then we talk about different kinds of life to distinguish between animals and vegetables or plants. 
Now, in defining things, you pay attention both to similarities and differences. We are all in the animal kingdom, but we're not baboons. We further differentiate and particularize within the animal kingdom the difference between human beings and baboons. And then we go into further precision when we talk about male and female, and we further particularize by making additional predications about individuals, where this man has a name, he has an age, he has a certain height and weight, and so on, where we get more and more and more precise. But that's what's necessary for knowledge to take place and for language to work. You need both the general and the particular. You need the subject and the predicate. And they cannot be brought in irreconcilable opposition to each other. So, therefore, he postulates the law of non-contradiction, which says that A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship, which in simple terms means that this piece of chalk cannot be a piece of chalk and a kangaroo at the same time in the same way. Now, I can be a father and a son and a brother all at the same time. We may predicate three distinct things about me at the same time, but not in the same relationship. I cannot be a son to my father and have him be my son at the same time and in the same relationship. Something cannot be what it is and not be what it is at the same time in the same relationship. Now, there can be nothing simpler or more foundational to human intelligibility than that. And yet in our day, we've seen wholesale and widespread rejection of the most foundational principle that Aristotle defined for science. And it's not only fatal to theology, it's fatal to science because it removes the necessary instrument for understanding. Now, there are many other contributions that Aristotle has given to the history of philosophy. Again, as I said, some have said that the whole history of theoretical thought is only a footnote to Plato and Aristotle. But since this is an overview, we're going to have to leave those other matters for your further research.